right. So welcome, everybody. Uh, just one more time, I want to make sure everyone knows that this program is available on nursinghome411.org. Uh, that includes the PowerPoint presentation and the fact sheets. We will be posting later on today a recording of this program. And for those of you who are long-term care ombudsman volunteers in New York, um, a number of the programs are now providing credit for in-service training for attending this. We'll give you information on the end about how you can let, uh, how we can let your supervisor know that you attended this program. So, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Richard Mollett, and today we're going to be talking about uh, involuntary transfer and discharge rights from a nursing home, uh, what the residents' rights are, what the protections are. I would like to, before we begin, thank the New York State Health Foundation, which has funded these programs. We're doing a series every single month on a, featuring a different resident right in the new nursing home regulations, what consumers and people who are involved in consumer-focused um, advocacy need to know, tools that they can use to advocate effectively. I'm just going to me. Sorry about that. Okay, so I'm muting everyone because I hear some background noise. Okay, so welcome again. A little bit about the coalition and about me. So the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, we are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for residents in nursing homes and assisted living adult homes and other residential care settings. We do try to work with, we do try to work with uh, providers, but our focus is on the consumer and people that work with, you know, residents and, and their families, including long-term care ombudsmen, other advocates, geriatric care managers, the Alzheimer's associations, et cetera. So again, welcome everyone. We have some people joining us I can hear. We are just getting started. I'm talking a little bit about the Long-Term Care Coalition. I've been with the coalition since 2002, and I've been the executive director of LTCCC since 2005, actually um, June of 2005. So it's just about my anniversary. What are we going to be talking about today? What I'm going to do now, uh, as I do every program, is to provide a brief background on the nursing home system, just to give you a lay of the land of how things work and what's going on now. Our focus today will be on resident protections from involuntary transfer or discharge from their nursing home. Quick reminder here, as I put in the bottom of the slide, it's important that I always try to remember that all rights center on the nursing home resident. However, if a resident lacks capacity or has assigned decision-making authority to someone else, that person takes the resident's place. So it's really important because most residents in nursing homes now have some level of dementia. They may not be able to understand their, their rights and or they may not be able to express what they want in a way that is readily understandable by the nursing home. So it's very important to understand that we are entirely resident-focused, as is the whole system, but that when there is someone else who is making decisions for the nursing home resident, that person takes their place, in essence, that they get to have 
all the information that would be provided to the resident, and they get to make decisions on his or her behalf. So the way the nursing home system works is that virtually every nursing home uh, participates, excuse me, in either Medicaid and or Medicare. Most of them participate in both. And by participate, we mean that they take Medicaid and or Medicare funding for some of their, uh, some or all of their patients or their residents. When a nursing home participates in Medicaid or Medicare, they agree to meet all of the standards provided for in the nursing home reform law. Now, states can have additional protections. They can have additional standards um, to the reform law, but no state can have less protections. So, for instance, most states now provide a minimum staffing requirement for their nursing homes. They say that you have to have a minimum number of RNs, LPNs, and certified nurse aides uh, per resident that you have in the facility. That's about 35 or 36 states right now. Our state, New York, is not one of those states, unfortunately, but that is one way in which a state can have additional requirements. Importantly, all of the federal requirements that we talk about apply to every single resident in the facility. So we're talking about Medicare, we're talking about Medicaid. They are the federal programs. They pay for most of resident care, but it doesn't matter if you're private pay, if you have your own private insurance, you're paying out of pocket, if you go from Medicare to Medicaid, they, if you're in a facility, they cannot discriminate against you in terms of the level of services that they provide for you. Now, the federal agency, CMS, has the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They are the ones that pay for all nursing home care, and they're the ones that develop all of the nursing home standards that we talk about. They contract with the state, it's usually at the State Department of Health, as it is in our state, New York, and those states, pay, excuse me, pay nursing homes, and they also are responsible for overseeing to make sure that residents have the care they need and that these standards are met for each and every resident 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year. That's what we depend upon. That's what residents rely on. I want to talk a little bit, as I do at the start of these programs, about the nursing home reform law because it's a really, I think it's a really special law. It's a really important law. So the federal law requires that every single nursing home resident is provided the care, quality of life services that he or she needs to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. I know that's a mouthful, so I just want to take a minute to talk about that. Highest practicable means that the law focuses on what the resident needs. So the nursing home reform law is really very special. Now, some laws for other industries, they may say, you know what, if you're going to call meet grade A, it has to have you know this level of fat in it or it has to be uh, fed corn as opposed to something else. Or they may have a, a rules for the automobile industry saying, we expect four motor, motor vehicles that you're going to have 27, um, uh, 27 miles per gallon or, or more for your, for your gas efficiency, excuse me. For the nursing home reform law, it's focused on the resident. It's focused on that when a facility takes in a resident, they have assessed that resident and they know that based upon that resident's needs, they can meet them. 
So it's, and so by highest, when we get back to highest practicable, it means that when you take in a resident, you're saying, I'm going to be able to take care of him or her. Most residents are women. I'm going to be able to take care of her so that she doesn't decline as a result of poor care. That she, if she has a decline, it's because it was inevitable as a result of perhaps aging or some other frailty. So, for instance, if you go into a nursing home and you're able to go to the bathroom or walk to the bathroom with some assistance, the nursing home has a responsibility to provide that assistance for you and not say, oh, we're going to put you in a diaper and we'll check back later on because we just don't have enough staff. Now, I understand that, unfortunately, that's the experience for many people, but that is not appropriate. That is not meeting the minimum standards that the federal law requires. Uh, these are, as you can imagine, very, as I'm sure many of you know, personal experience, that these are very um, difficult issues because we see some of these things happening too often. But that's why I'm here that's why my organization is here, the LTCCC and other organizations around the country. Many of you who are advocating professionally or for, um, or for loved ones or as volunteers and ombudsmen, et cetera, to make things better for residents. So it really comes back to, I believe, understanding what our rights are because that enables us to begin to advocate for them and to push back against for instance, in that example, just putting someone in a diaper for the convenience of staff when that's that's not really appropriate. It's certainly not what we would want. When I first started the organization 15 years ago and I was in my 40s, I used to say, you know, in my 40s and I wouldn't want to be put in a diaper if I can walk to the bathroom. Um, now in my 50s, I feel the same way. And I think if I'm in my 80s or 90s, if I live that long and I wind up needing nursing home care, if I can get to the bathroom, if I can get to the toilet, with some help, that's what I'm going to want to do. I would prefer not to be put in a diaper. And that's why, that's just one regulation, one standard, but that's why these standards are so important. Uh, the law passed in 1987, so this, came, this has been just about 40 years now, 87, 97, 2007, 30 years, excuse me, <laughs> sorry about that. And the regulations came out in 1991. So all of the standards pretty much that we've talked about over the years have been in existence for 25 years. Now things are changing now. So what's happening? For the first time since 1991, the federal regulatory system that supports all nursing home care and quality is being significantly revised and updated. And as I note here in the slide, this is honestly going to affect every aspect of care and quality of life. So again, what we're doing in these programs is trying to clue in on some of the specific aspects of the standards that we think are most important, that we think there is the best potential for, for consumers, for residents, and those who work with them to advocate for better care. So as I said, all the regulations are changing systemically. When you think about something that's gone on, something that's been around for 25 years, all these changes, changes to the regulations, changes to the guidelines, which explain what is expected from nursing homes, um, the FTEG system, which is how the surveyors identify problems when they're in the nursing home. Surveyors are, of course, the inspectors. All these things are changing, so there's going to be a lot of flux and a lot of confusion. And that's another reason why I thought it was so important. You know, how do we 
plug in with families and with ombudsmen and with nursing home residents and and you know other advocates who are working with them is to try to help you understand uh you know, give you some tools to understand what is going on what are the changes taking place so that you can really be there um you know we could all be there together at the front lines to advocate for change so why does this matter and why is this so important just to step back I think a lot of the rules are stronger. One of the points in, in redeveloping the rules or changing them from 1991 through 2017 or 2016 actually is when they first started coming out is because they realized that our idea of resident dignity, our ideas about aging, our ideas about clinical care have changed since 1991. So they in many ways improved the rules. Hopefully, this will also lead to improved enforcement. But we'll see more of that this year as those guidelines come out. And I don't want to get too much into it now, but just to let you know that we're seeing some better tools coming out for the surveyors, for the, me, the nursing homes to understand what is expected of them, and for surveyors to enforce those standards. And then hopefully, as I note um, here, that'll lead to better resident care. Why is this information important for us? Again, I just think it's critical that we know what our rights are as the changes are implemented and beyond. Changes started last year. The first rules came out in October, and the, some of the basic standards that have been in place that really didn't change much, they went into effect right away uh, last November. Some of the smaller changes that, that, are, that are going to affect resident care, resident quality, some of those clinical standards, they're being rolled out this year, this November, and then in November of 2019 will be the final standards that will implement some of the bigger changes from the 1991 regulations. So I hope it's clear. Really here what I wanted to do is just give you a sense that a lot of things are changing. There is room for improvement, but there's also risk that if we are not aware of our rights, if we don't make sure that nursing homes know what they're supposed to be doing, that those rights may not be implemented. So as I note here, knowledge equals power. I just want to mention, and I'll mention this again, there is no reason, you don't have to feel like to memorize this. I know that our programs tend to be very intensive in terms of the amounts of information that we provide. Everything, again, will be up on the website. We're posting this webinar program on the website. It's already there, actually, excuse me. We have two fact sheets that are up there uh, for today's uh, materials that you can use in the future any way you see fit. We really want to get this information out as usefully and as effectively as possible. And again, we'll be recording this. We have a little YouTube icon on the front page of our website, nursinghome411.org, and we're going to post the recording there, and you can view that or previous recordings at any time. So what is the purpose of these particular programs? One, we're going to talk about the federal language, what is in the new standards, just so you have a sense of not what I'm saying. You don't have to take my word for it. This is exactly what the federal language is requiring right now. We're going to summarize some of the important points that at least I've identified as being important for improving resident care, for ensuring that residents are protected, and then we'll talk a little bit about the fact sheets, which really combine these two things. They have a bit about the language, and they also have some summaries, some checklists for you to use going forward. 
as I mentioned here again, there's no reason to memorize. What I really want to do is just to plug in with you about some of the things that we have identified as important and let you know about some of the tools that are available there. Before we get started, just I want to say it again. It's really important for us to be aware of what our rights are and what we have a right to expect from our nursing home because if we don't know our rights, we have no way to advocate for them. And that to me is, is really the fundamental point of my interest uh, and my, you know, my interest in doing this work and in hoping that it is useful to you. Uh, before we move on, I also want to mention if you ever have any feedback, positive or negative, I'm very interested. Uh, my personal email address is richard at ltccc.org. It's our initials. So it's Long-Term Care Community Coalition, LT is in Tim, 3Cs.org. Thank you. So the substance of today's programs is on protections from involuntary transfer and discharge. Why are these issues important? Involuntary transfer and discharge are growing problems for nursing home residents and families. We're hearing about it from families. We're hearing about it from long-term care ombudsmen. We're hearing about it from attorneys who work with residents. We're hearing about it from, from other um, people and organizations that work with residents and families or, or seniors or people with disabilities. Too often when we hear them about these things, we hear about it because a resident has been discharged or is being discharged for reasons that may not be appropriate or may even be legal. So I want to preface this program. I don't usually do this, but there are some distinctions here that I think are important. Excuse me. Uh, this program focuses on the federal resident protections from involuntary transfer and discharge. So we're going to talk about what those protections are, what's been added with the new regulatory standards. And these rights, as I mentioned at the very beginning, they apply to all residents, no matter what state your resident is in, if you're in New York or if you have a resident in another state, uh, if you're Medicare, Medicaid, private pay, or whatever, these residents apply to, excuse me, these um, rules apply to you. States differ, however, in when, when they certify or when they allow a nursing home to certify for Medicare or Medicaid bed. Now, our home state, New York, does not allow facilities to say that only some of its beds are for Medicaid residents and others are for Medicare residents or for private pay. But if your resident is in another state, his or her rights may be different in this regard. So what we recommend if you're faced with a discharge situation, just very quickly, you know, a quick point is, one, know your rights. I want to talk about it here. We do cite, give, excuse me, we give citations to all the standards. So we summarize them, but you can actually go back to the, to the actual law and copy that out as well. Um, we suggest you take advantage of any appeal process available to you as soon as possible. So there's an appeal process uh, from the facility if they are discharging. We'll talk about that more. But also, if you're applying for Medicare or Medicaid and you've been rejected, to implement any appeal process for that as soon as possible as well. Contact your local long-term care ombudsman. could be someone in the facility. could be a local office or the state office. And then if necessary, seek professional legal advice. And that could be hiring a private attorney, could be working through an elder rights or disability rights organization in, um, in your area. So what can, excuse me one second, sorry about that. 
when can a nursing home discharge involuntarily? And before we get started, I just want to mention on the side, you can see I have this on a number of slides, wherever it's applicable. It looks like a kind of a starburst. Anywhere that you see orange type, this is new regulatory language. So everything that I have in italics comes directly from the federal regulations. It's not something that I'm making up. It's not something that I hope is there. It's the actual regulatory language. And anything that's in orange is new. So the reason why I do that is so you can see what is going on now. How are things being changed? How are we thinking about things so that we can better protect the residents? So what the regulations say is that the facility must permit each resident to stay in the facility and not transfer or discharge the resident except for a few very specific reasons. So they could do it if the transfer or discharge is necessary for the resident's welfare and the resident's needs cannot be met in the facility. Two, they can transfer if it's appropriate because the resident's health has improved sufficiently so he or she no longer needs nursing home care. Three, that the safety of the individuals in the facility is endangered because of the clinical or behavioral status of the residents. So that, that but it has to be a real endangerment. Um, fourth, the health of the individuals in the facility would otherwise be endangered by the resident being there. Fifth, the resident has failed after reasonable and appropriate notice to pay for or have paid under Medicare or Medicaid a stay at the facility. There's a lot of protections here because, uh, you know, the facilities should be helping people if they need to apply for Medicare and or Medicaid or help them with an appeal process. I don't get into it all here. Uh, so there's more information available, but you can see that it really, it's very, very limited. And then lastly, the only other reason why a resident could be involuntarily discharged is if the facility ceases to operate. Here I want to mention, as you can see, this is all orange, it's all new, that the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services put in rights during the residential appeal process. So it says here the facility may not transfer or discharge the resident while the appeal is pending unless the failure to discharge or transfer would endanger the health or safety of the resident or other individuals in the facility. The facility must document the danger that failure to transfer or discharge would pose. So what this basically says is that, you know, we had very limited reasons in which a, a resident could be discharged against the will. Uh, I'm going to mute again because I hear someone in the background. Um, sorry about that. Just one second, please. So sorry about that. We might have had someone who joined us and therefore wasn't muted. So to get back to this, it's very, very clear. So you only had those limited instances, limited situations in which a resident could be kicked out of a facility uh, or you know, discharged. But that's essentially what happens. The residents are asked to leave or they say, here you go, and you're going out. Um, the facility, if there's an appeal, that makes it even more limited. Basically. While there is an active appeal, the resident can only be discharged if it's a danger to, to the health and safety of the resident or to others in the facility. 
And if, it is, if that's what the facility is saying, they must document that danger in the, um, in the medical record. So that's really important. It's not just saying, oh, you know what, she was such a danger, we had to get rid of her. They have to document that. There has to be something in writing. So that really, I think, gives an important boost to the standard. So in writing, with the documentations, again, here, everything in orange is new, and you can see there's a lot in new. So when the facility transfers or discharges a resident under any of those circumstances, again, there's only a few ways in which they can do that, but any of those circumstances, the facility must ensure that the transfer or discharge is documented in the resident's medical records and appropriate information is communicated to the receiving healthcare institution or provider. Wherever the resident is going, that information has to be communicated to them. Now, the documentation in the resident's medical record must include, again, this is all new, the reason for the transfer, and in cases in which transfer or discharge is necessary for the resident's welfare and the resident's needs cannot be met in the facility, they have to document the specific needs that cannot be met, how the facility attempted to meet those needs, and how the services in the new facility are so special that they can meet those needs. So this is really important because a lot of times uh, when there is an improper discharge, what happens is that a facility says, oh, we can no longer meet her needs anymore, so we have to send her to another nursing home. Um, that is, in my experience, very rarely true. And unfortunately, too often when there is an inappropriate discharge, a facility will hide behind that and say, oh, we can no longer care for you. Um, you know, if you if they send you to the hospital, they won't take you back. We can no longer care for you. Here it's saying that they have to say what it is specifically they can't do, how they tried to do what, you know, how they tried to meet those needs, and how the new place is going to be so much better at meeting those needs. So it's really, I thought this was really um, excellent. I thought it really helped us to require some substantiation, not just saying, oh, we can't help her anymore, um, but to really require that they spell out what they did and what are the ex you know, why they think that the other facility, or why they know, I should say, the other facility is going to be so much better. Lastly here, and as you can see, I note in blue the important points, uh, points, excuse me, that I thought were important. Documentation must be made by a physician except if the discharge is due to failure or payment or facility closing. So that's important, too. It just can't be anyone that's writing it up. It has to be a physician. Here I want to talk a little bit about what are the requirements for the notice to the resident. So before, in terms of documentation, we talked about the documentation that has to go into the medical record. So this is, has to be part of the record around the incident, around what's going on, what the facility did, what they couldn't do, what, why, how, et cetera. Here we're talking about what do we have to tell the resident or the resident's family or representative in these cases. So before a facility, again, this is all the federal language, before a facility transfers or discharges a resident, the facility must notify the resident and the resident's representatives of the transfer or discharge and the reasons for the move in writing and in a language and manner they understand. So if the resident only speaks Spanish, 
only or only reads in Spanish, then it should be in Spanish. And same thing if it's a family that resident say who is Latina is you know, doesn't speak in English and she has dementia, then it's the same thing for the family. It has to be in a language that they understand. The facility must also send a copy of the notice of discharge to a representative of the Office of the State Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. Lastly here, they must record the reasons for the transfer or discharge in the resident's medical record. And here again, we're continuing with the notice of the residents and the written notice must include the following. Again, the reason for transfer or discharge, the effective date of transfer or discharge, the location to which the resident is being transferred or discharged, a statement that includes the resident's appeal rights, including, and this is all new, the name, address, both mailing and email, and the telephone number of the entity which receives such requests, and information on how to obtain an appeal form and help in completing the form and submitting the appeal hearing request. It must also include the name, address, mailing and email, and telephone number of the Office of the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. For residents who have intellectual and de developmental disabilities, excuse me, or related disabilities, the mailing and email address and telephone number of the agency responsible for the protection and advocacy of individuals with developmental disabilities, and for residents with a mental disorder or related disability, the mailing and email address and telephone number of the agency responsible for the protection and advocacy of individuals with a mental disorder established on the Protection and Advocacy for Mentally Ill Individuals Act. So again, I understand it's a lot of information. Don't worry about writing it all down. Don't worry, you certainly don't have to memorize it. Uh, we put a lot of this in the fact sheets and this, this PowerPoint is going to, is actually on our website right now. So you can always go back to it. You are free to take it out and use it. We really want to get this information out as effectively as possible to anyone who can use it. So those are the rights in, in some for transfer and for discharge. What I want to do now is just review quickly some of the points and let you know about two things that we have here. We have a fact sheet and we have a fact sheet. <laughs> fact sheet right here and then the next page I'll talk about is we have a frequently asked question, FAQ sheet. Uh, so I'll explain both of them really briefly. Now this is again on our website right now. So here you can see for each factory, we do this for every single regulation that we talk about in these programs, has a little bit about at the top of the factory on the left-hand side about why the issue is important. And then we have um, each of the standards that we just talked about. So here you can see transfer and discharge protections. We have the citation 42 CFR 483.15. That is the relevant federal regulation. So you could just put that into a Google search or a Bing search or whatever you use and come up. You don't have to say, oh, someone from the LTCCC told me about this. Uh, you know, you heard about it, et cetera. It is right there. Again, all of the language from the federal regulations is italicized. So I'm quoting it, but you don't even have to take my word for it. You can always go back. So you have something that is the law, the regulation, to support your advocacy. Uh, right to appeal, documentation requirement, they all really come under 42 CFR 
so I didn't add them here. And then notice before transfer on the right-hand page. All these things are, are things we just discussed, but they're all here laid out for you. And then what we did on page two, you could see in the greenish-yellow box, is we put together just some basic considerations for you to think about and for you to know in terms of protections against discharge, in terms of documentation of reasons for discharge. So again, what we wanted to do is to make this as useful as possible. And as I mentioned earlier, if you have any comments, I welcome them because we really do want to make sure that these are usable, user-friendly, and effective in supporting your work for you and for your residents. And then lastly, I have our website at the bottom for resources because we have all our fact sheets there, all the presentations, etc. Now, for this standard, what we did, we also did a frequently asked question sheet, FAQ sheet. This is also up on our website. And here, we have a little bit less about the nursing home standards because you can go back to the fact sheet for more. But we have two examples at the top on the left-hand side of, of, what, of two people who are being discharged from their facility. And then we included some important considerations on making appeal, we talk about how those appeals worked out, you know, what happened with each of these two examples, and then you can see at the bottom here we put a number of resources for more information. So there's our website, nursinghome411.org, there's the Medicare Advocacy website, Center for Medicare Advocacy. They are especially focused on Medicare. You know, a lot of people get um, pushed out of a nursing home once they have plateaued, if they go in there for rehab services. And so there's a lot of protections around that that Center for Medicare Advocacy has really been a leader on, and I wanted to include that. And then lastly, we also include the Consumer Voice, which has information, a lot of information for advocates, a lot of information on appeal and discharge rights over the years, but they also have the excuse me, Long-Term Care Ombudsman Resource Center, which has some really good materials for ombudsmen, but really that could be used by anybody. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to open it up to questions and comments. And again, if you have anything that you want to say to me specifically or offline, you're more than welcome to. I just want to mention, again, we're, we're very small. I muted again just, just to, to finish that thought. Uh, we're a very small organization, so unfortunately we do just don't have the capacity to help with specific cases or problems. But if you have a question, if you have a comment, certainly, uh, we would, you know, do what we can, uh, do the best that we can to help you and certainly would appreciate any comments or questions. So again, I'm going to unmute Any questions? Okay, I see uh, we have a write-in. <laughs> Just one second, please. Okay, so uh, hi, Leslie. Uh, if a if a SNF a SNF is a skilled nursing facility is seeking to DC a resident, and in the interim the patient is admitted to a hospital, it is the SNF required to readmit that person. That's a good question. I um, uh, 
I'm not sure if that would, if there's a blanket answer for that, to be honest. And I, and I apologize, but I will look into that, and I will post something. Uh, we have a Facebook page. It's facebook.com forward slash LTCCC. And I will see if I can, if there is a clear answer there, unless someone on the line knows and wants to chime in. Okay, so I, I will take that, and I'll post that on, on Facebook. I'm sorry about that, because I think... Uh, in my experience, anyway, that could that might vary a bit depending upon the um, the nature of the case and how long they're in the hospital and what the state um, what the state's requirements are in terms of bed holds. Uh, any other questions or comments? Hi, Richard. Yes. I'm not sure if I heard that there's a lot of static on the line, if I heard that last question correctly, but uh, to my knowledge, a resident cannot just be discharged to a hospital as a final discharge location. You can't just leave the residence there. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry about the um, – uh, Sarah, are you there? Sarah? Yes, I'm, yes, I'm here. Is it star six? It's star six or clicking on the microphone at the top of the screen. Okay, so I'm going to mute everyone again. I'm going to mute everyone again, and if you have a comment, please press star six. Sorry about that. Sorry for the background noise. So uh, what Charles Gorgi um, said is that a resident can't be discharged, can't be sent to a hospital and then effectively discharged. I hope I got that right, Charles. If not, you can please unmute yourself again at star six. Um, but I, it's what the question was is if a if a, a nursing home is seeking to discharge a resident and in the interim that that resident is admitted to the hospital, is this, is the nursing home required to readmit that person? That's the confusing part for me, honestly, is to think about how that situation plays out. If they weren't just discharged and the facility says, you know, either discharged with the purpose of, of being you know, sent to the hospital, excuse me, with the purpose of being discharged from the nursing home, that, as, as you know, is not appropriate um, as, a, as a discharge, and the facility would have to take that person back. But if it's another circumstance where... For instance, if in the process the resident was discharged or if maybe, you know, maybe even beforehand, not discharged, excuse me, but sent to the hospital, um, that I'm not quite as sure about. So I'll, I'll look into it a little bit. But no, a facility, just to be very definitive, a facility cannot send someone from a hospital to a, let me restate that, sorry. A, a facility cannot send someone to a hospital and thereby effectuate a discharge. Absolutely not. That, that is yeah, not. I'm thinking that the hospital wouldn't admit them unless there was a clinical acute need. But I was suggesting that if coincidentally, while pending a planned discharge for whatever one of those reasons was, the person had a change in their clinical situation, truly requiring acute admission to the hospital, um, that is a formal discharge without a bed hold. Right. Well, well, well. Let, let, I mean, I, uh, by right, I mean I, I think I'm understanding your question better. So, 
if someone has that need, I mean, basically all the protections that we were talking about still exist. So if a if the facility, if, if the resident has something that, for instance, would be a danger to others in the facility, then the facility does not have to take that resident back. It falls, it goes back to all those those same standards we talked about. So you have the appeal process that may, you know, may be taking place and the resident has all the rights within that appeal process. But if there was, you know, any of those standards that exist in terms of the residents, um, you know, if the resident is a danger to others, et cetera, then the facility would not have to take them back. But it, it really goes, none of those changes, excuse me, none of those protections change by a resident going into a hospital in the interim. So I think that answers the question. Uh, now, Marvin asked, is the nursing home required to test for compatibility when matching roommates? No. <laughs> Uh, thank you for asking. I, I, uh, it doesn't really relate to, to the issue today, but that's a very good question. And, and the answer is no. The nursing home has, has no requirement to do that. I, um, I don't really know of any nursing homes that have. I mean, it's a good idea that they do whatever they can to make sure that people are compatible. And certainly we would expect that if, if uh, roommates were not compatible, that the nursing home would do everything possible to help match up the uh, residents with more compatible roommates. And that's something that if it's an issue that someone is facing individually, I would recommend that they speak to their ombudsman as a, uh, as a first step, because that's something that an ombudsman could help them to hopefully negotiate and work with the facility to a, um, to a result that is happy for, you know, for better for all, all people involved. Uh, any other questions or comments, uh, please press star six. I have one other question comment. Okay. Um, when you talked about transferring from one nursing facility to another for some reason, such as the current facility can't meet their needs, would an example of that be that the individual requires let's say, a secure dementia unit because they are at high risk for elopement and let's say facility A doesn't have a secure unit? Well, that's that's a really good question because actually more and more facilities are moving away from, from using secure units for dementia care, even for significant dementia care. So I would, I would say that if I was representing that individual just based upon, you know, what you're saying, I would expect that a facility would be able to take other steps to make sure that that resident is safe, whether or not they have a special unit. Uh, you certainly, as I said, you certainly don't need to have a special unit in order to provide significant dementia care. And, and in fact, there's some studies now that are coming out that say that that's probably not preferable. Thank you. Sure. Um, so I, I think along those lines, it's really useful to mention that the facility, when you're a licensed nursing home, again, you, you agree to meet or exceed all the standards in, in federal regulation. So there are a lot of standards around dementia care. There are a lot of standards around uh, making sure that people don't develop uh, infections, that there is good control over the antibiotics, 
you know, so people don't develop antibiotic resistant infections. So there's a, there are a fair amount of expectations. As I said, I, I did a training yesterday for ombudsman and, you know, you're not, when you're a nursing home, you're not a YMCA. You know, you're not, you're not taking in people for $25 a day and handing them a key and a towel. You are promising that you're going to provide a host of skilled nursing services 24 hours a day. So it's very hard to make the case that you can't care for a resident. I mean, I could see that there would be certain circumstances. It might be that uh, if, the rent, if the resident becomes ventilator dependent and you don't have the ability to have ventilators in your facility, um, that could be one I just, you know, thinking offhand. But generally speaking, the uh, skilled nursing facility is providing significant around-the-clock care and monitoring and is expected to do so uh, in the professional level. So there's not a lot of, you know, just baseline excuses. You know, it, another thing that really bothers me about the dementia care issue is that, you know, when I hear facilities that, you know, that talk about giving residents antipsychotic drugs to control, you know, behaviors related to dementia, and we know that that is a very widespread and very serious problem in our nursing homes, but most residents have dementia. And nursing home residents have had dementia since, for as long as it's been nursing homes. So if you don't know how to care for someone with dementia, what are you doing in running a nursing home? It just seems very, uh, so I, I just thought it was worth mentioning because it is something we hear a lot about. It's, it's a legitimate issue for consumers. I just don't think it's a very legitimate issue for providers, to be honest, because that is, that's the majority of residents have some level of dementia. We have another question from Myrna Miller. Uh, if appeal or extension goes beyond maximum number of days paid by insurance, uh, plus 20 days for traditional Medicare, is patient responsible for the tab? Well, there are, as I mentioned at, earlier on, there's an appeal from the facility in terms of being discharged, and then also if a resident is applying for Medicare or Medicaid benefits and they're turned down, they could appeal that as well. Uh, so whether or not, you know, if um, I, I can't really answer, to be honest, I'm not sure if someone else on the line can, if in terms of the, if, if you've been, if your appeal has been rejected, then generally you get stuck paying for that. You do become responsible. But I want to be very careful about about saying saying anything definitively because I know that we're seeing a lot of issues now um, in terms of appeal rights and and there's a lot of back and forth. Uh, you might also want to check if you have a specific issue with the Center for Medicare Advocacy, MedicareAdvocacy.org. I gave that link at the um, uh, in the fact sheet, but they do a lot of work with Medicare appeal issues. And there's been some high court cases in, you know, over the last year or two about these appeal issues. And that's why I just want to be a little bit cautious about saying anything definitively because I think it can depend. Uh, I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for that. Do we have any other questions or comments? Hi, this is Carol Cromer, and I have a question about if a resident in a nursing home 
has been admitted to an acute care hospital, what is the obligation on holding the bed? Uh, well, that that varies by state. What state are you? Are you in New York? Yes. Okay. Um, now, they recently changed the bed hold policy. It's something that that we've gone back and forth on. Yes. Well, essentially, if a resident leaves the and they're on Medicaid or Medicare. Either I've dealt with both. <laughs> okay, I don't think that there's um, there's any bed hold policy for Medicare. I think it's only for Medicaid. Okay. I was actually reviewing the regulations this morning uh, just to refresh my memory you know, before the program. And for Medicaid, to be honest, I don't remember. I, I'd be happy to um, to look that up and post it. I don't re- recall what the final decision was for this year. I know that it changed or was at risk of changing. But it I think changed it, recently yeah, was my understanding. So I, I wonder what it was. I don't know what the recent change is. Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll post that on our website. And if you're on our New York listserv, I could, I could put that on our New York listserv as well. But, um, yeah, there were essentially what, what Carol is saying is that, you know, for Medicaid residents, some states, and New York has traditionally been one of them, will pay a facility if they have a very high occupancy rate to hold that particular bed for the okay. resident, for him or her to come back. But that has been nibbled at um, for over the last couple of years to reduce, reduce, reduce the, that, um, that benefit. Now, if the facility has a lot of you know, beds open, they really should accommodate. You know what I mean? Whether they're Medicare or Medicaid, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean that 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 to me is just really good customer service. It's something that I would advocate for, um, you know, more informally. But I will find out if it was probably part of the budget bill, and I I um I just don't recall for you know precisely what it was for the state, but I know it was whittled down. So I'll post that on our on our Facebook page. Okay, uh, thank you. Sure, thank you. Uh, before I forget. Uh, on the current slide, we have, you know, again, thank you for joining us. Some of the ways in which you can uh, join us on Facebook, on Twitter, et cetera. But on the box on the lower left-hand side, the Amazon programs in New York State, many of them are now provi- allowing, excuse me, many of them are now allowing the volunteers to attend this program. And if you let us know by taking a quick survey that you attended the program, you can receive credit towards in-service training. So this depends upon your supervisor, but what we will do if you go to that link and take the quick survey is that we will notify your supervisor. Now you can either do that by having attended this program or we're going to post the program, the recording tonight, if you view it uh, and take the survey within the next week, we will let your supervisor know. Uh, secondly, also on this page on the right-hand side in the blue box, for family members in New York State, we just want to connect you with the Alliance of New York Family Councils, www.an as in Nancy, y as in yes, f as in Frank, c as in Carol, anyfc.org. Uh, and for those of you who may not be able to see it, I'll also give the link for the survey. It's www.surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash l t c c c dash l t c o p one. So it's l t our initials dash the cop one.
Well, thank you for that. And then lastly, our next training is uh, July 18th at 1 p.m. We're going to be talking about two things, requirements for nursing home staff and requirements for nursing home administration. So if you look at here, I put it in two clouds. For instance, we're going to you know, answer the question, are there any requirements to ensure that the care staff is competent to meet the needs of the resident? Also, for instance, who determines how many staff have to be in the nursing home and how do they make that determination? So we're going to talk about basically how, what is expected of the nursing home staff and what is expected of the administration in overseeing that staff and ensuring that residents are cared for and that their needs are met. So um, one more chance, if there's any questions or comments, again. Yeah, I do have a question. Yes. Oh, great. Thanks. Hi. Diana Dell in Rockland County. Hi. Um, hi there. Uh, many, a number of years ago, over 10 years ago, there was a uh, regulation that um, people who were difficult to place, uh, having been refused in other nursing homes for a variety of reasons, if a third nursing home was approached and two had refused to accept that individual, the third one was mandated to accept that individual. Does that still stand? I have never heard of that before. So, which is, uh, I've never heard of that before. This was Rockland County, and this is what the administrator of one of the nursing homes where I was an ombudsman at the time told me. Really? And I... Yeah, and but this is this again is over ten years ago, and I was wondering if that was still in effect. And another concern I have is that if somebody is difficult to place, how is an appropriate placement made? And if it turns out not to be appropriate, mm. then what happens to that individual? Do they have to act out and do something so horrible that police are involved and they're removed from the facility, you know, mm. under under stress? Where do they go? What happens to them? What does the state do to protect them? Okay, well, those, those are two good questions. Now, I'm not aware of any regulation. There might be practices, uh, and, I, okay. and you know, my knowledge is not, you know, I'm not a library in terms of knowledge, but I, uh, and if anyone else has heard of that, I know Charles is still on the line, or someone else who, who might have that knowledge, I've never heard of that, that if you two say no, the third has to say yes. The issue that we've always had and what I've tried to focus on today is that a nursing home will say, oh, we can't safely care for you, and that may not necessarily be true. But a nursing home always can, can, can say historically that, oh, we, we just can't safely care for you, and that's how they have avoided in the past caring for people or for people with family members that were troublesome. You know right, I mean? so, right. So, so that – so I'm not aware, you know, I, I don't want to say definitively because I haven't memorized the law, but I've never heard of that situation before. Uh, you know, it might have been a practice in, in, you know, certain insurance plans, et cetera, as my best guess, but uh, so I, I don't know. Um, but that's you know, the practice I am aware of is that, unfortunately, there are, there are facilities that have said no for not always legitimate reasons, and this tries to crack down on that. Now, in answer to your other question, I got a little confused because you were talking about admission, but then you, it sounded like you were saying that, you know, about getting rid of someone who's, who's difficult. So in terms of being admitted, you know, a facility 
it, it can be a challenge to be admitted. And we see that a lot when a resident has problems, even if they, you know, whether or not, or let, let me rephrase that, either they have problems or a facility has documented problems, whether or not that documentation is accurate, sometimes other facilities won't want to touch that risk. So it becomes right. very hard to, to get placed, especially, you know, to get placed someplace that is close by to you and or someplace that has a, you know, uh, a, a better rating. So what happens, at least in my experience, is that they'll wind up going someplace that is generally not too good a facility that has a very low census, you know, very low resident population and is desperate to take someone in. Sometimes you can have a good advocate, uh, such as, as an ombudsman or someone else who's advocating for that resident who is able to persuade, you know, an incoming facility in a way that, you know, to, to help explain away some of those issues. But it's, it's very, very challenging. Now, I think the second part of your question, correct me if I'm wrong, is well, what happens if someone, you know, essentially gets kicked out of a facility because their behavior is so bad? How is the state, you know, or the nursing home is saying their behavior is so bad? Um, how is the state protecting them to ensure they go someplace else? Unfortunately, the, the, the state really isn't. So we, what we see, and this is one reason why I, I was so interested in covering this, this issue, is that we see people being transferred or discharged to homeless shelters. We see people being transferred or discharged to single-room occupancy, you know, like hotels. Uh, we've seen on occasion over the years people just being put into a taxi. And yeah. on their way. Yeah, there have been some horrible cases um, over the years, and I'm just talking about, you know, ones I know directly in, in our area. So, and you know, I know of others, you know, that, you know, we read about occasionally uh, throughout the country. But, yeah, so so there, there's not a lot. I mean, that's why I emphasize so much here. And, again, you don't have – no one has to remember it, but it's in the fact sheet what has to be in the documentation. And that documentation has to be done by a doctor. And unless the facility is closing – or it's one of those emergency situations of, of immediate danger, it has to be documented by a doctor. So it has to be that's someone who has their profession, you know, their professional accreditation licensure on the line that they're lying. So that to me was a, you know, is an, a strong improvement in the protections around this. They also have to say, if they're discharging someone, they have to say, you know, they used to be able to say, oh, we just can't care for them any longer. Their, their dementia got too bad, you know, as, as the example we talked about before, and we don't have the capacity to help them. Well, now they really have to say, well, what did you do? They have to write down, what did you do to try to meet those needs? And not only that, how is the new place that you're sending, to, to which you're sending the, the resident, going to be so much better? What are their specialized services? So those are two things that I think make it much harder to just get off with or get away with um, transferring a resident without a good reason. So hopefully, uh, you know, with, with our knowledge about this, uh, you know, we're really trying to reach out to the ombudsman and to family and resident council so that they are aware and they share this information in their facilities that, um, you know, you're equipped to, to better advocate, to know what your rights are. Because too often it's easy to say, oh, yeah, they can't care for us anymore. Well, they wouldn't lie about that, so let's just go someplace else. But that's, 
um, that doesn't have to happen. Right. Do you, have, do you have time for one more? Yeah, sure. Okay, I'm not on the computer. I'm just on the phone. Um, okay. we're, we're geriatric care managers in Buffalo, New York. Hi. And uh, I'm here with my office staff listening in for the conference call. One thing that we think comes up that we see relatively frequently is after rehab is done, the facility telling people that they need to find another nursing home for long-term care and not stay there. Yes. That's something that we're that we're seeing more of now. Um, for those of you who whose residence is not, for the, I'm sorry. Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't, uh, so, so I didn't in, in, in New York, you know, this really depends in many ways on the state because, as I mentioned in an earlier slide, some states have beds that are allow a nursing home. Excuse me, they allow a nursing home to have some of their beds for Medicare and some of their beds for Medicaid. And, and so they can make different distinctions and limit different types of patients or residents. So that really depends upon um, where your resident is. Uh, but if your resident is in New York State, we don't allow that kind of discrimination. We are hearing about it happening. So I would, you know, certainly alert the Department of Health, even generally or, or anonymously about that. Um, you know, if you wanted to send me an email, I would keep your name anonymous. But we are really interested in hearing about these stories because it is not supposed to be happening. When you're licensed in New York State, you are, you know, you're licensed as a, you know, for Medicare and Medicaid. We don't have, um, you know, those kind of, um, you know, discrimination. Well, we, we found once we get on the phone with either the social worker or, business office or somebody and advocate for them, then usually all of a sudden the issue clears up. Uh -huh. Right. And see, again, you know, a lot of this is can really be taken care of more informally, hopefully, you know, by, by individuals, by, by, by informed you know, individuals and families, by ombudsmen, by geriatric care managers. I'm so glad you guys joined us today. Uh, by people who work with, you know, the elder care organizations and elder justice organizations because, a lot of times facilities, to be honest, feel they could just get away with it, so they just do it. And once they are, you know, once they're given, you know, confronted with someone who has knowledge, they will back down because, you know, when they're wrong, you're wrong. And, and families don't know. I mean, we dealt with a family relatively recently that we didn't deal with them till after they were switched to a subpar facility from where they were for rehab. Yeah. And unfortunately, it was after the fact in a dementia situation where, the client actually then got out of the facility and uh, wandered away and then was picked up, and now we're trying to get her back someplace better, and it's just oh, going to no. be more possible. Yeah. yeah. You see, thank you for sharing that, because that, that's exactly the kind of situation that we don't want to see happen. Um, yeah, that's, that's obviously very, very upsetting. So it's really, it gets back to why I think, you know, it's not a sales pitch. All these things are, 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 are free, but I really – want to, as an advocate, I, I really want people to be as informed so they can use that information to advocate uh, effectively. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And please, any of our materials, if you want to put your name on it, it's fine with me. I we really just want to get out. If, if it, any of this is useful, uh, please get it out and share it in any way you see fit, uh, especially with residents and family councils and other people, you know, the geriatric care managers and ombudsmen. Uh, you know, Alzheimer's associations, people that are providing, you know, advice and help, we really want to
connect with them as much as possible. So thank you for joining us and for that really valuable question. Oh, you're welcome. We got, Kathy, we got in on the end here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone else? Well, I thank you all very much for joining us. Again, I think I'll go up to the last slide. If you're a long-term care ombudsman in New York State and you want credit, uh, it's the, the second to last slide. We're, we're going to post it as well on the website, but it's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash ltccc dash ltcop1. Um, and we would love to give you credit. And thank you all again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Hope to see you all July 18th. Please let your families and your resident councils know if you need any materials from us, anything you want to pass out, handouts, we'd be happy to send them to you. Email Sarah, S-A-R-A, at ltcc.org. Thank you all again. You all have a very nice afternoon.